Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Ted O'Connell, author of USMLE Step 2 Secrets and Chief Content Officer for Inside the Boards. This is the Step 2 Secrets podcast, where we provide you the high-yield content from Step 2 Secrets in audio format, as well as question breakdowns, so you can study on the go and get back to reclaiming some of your life. Here's our question dissection for today. A 68-year-old man presents to his physician's office complaining of severe low back pain that shoots down his right leg. This pain has progressively worsened over the past four months despite rest and over-the-counter anti-inflammatory medications. He reports that the pain is worse with recumbency or with coughing. He also notes a 15-pound weight loss over the past 12 weeks, which he has attributed to the medications flaring his peptic ulcer disease. His medical history only consists of benign prostatic hyperplasia and peptic ulcer disease. A lumbar x-ray from two months ago shows no evidence of fracture or issues with alignment. Given his symptoms, which of the following is the most appropriate next step? Is it A, barium swallow, B, bed rest and local heat application, C, magnetic resonance imaging, of the lumbar spine, D, physical therapy, or E, prescription anti-inflammatory medication. So looking at this case, we have an older gentleman who is having persistent low back pain for four months with ridiculous symptoms, has tried conservative therapy with rest and uh, NSAIDs that he's been taking, and he has weight loss, which is really the most concerning factor here. So looking at the the answer choices, we're going to want to get a look at the uh, spinal column to try to determine what exactly is going on given the persistence of symptoms and weight loss. So with that, ruling out barium swallow is reasonable. Choice B is bed rest and local heat application, which would be um, not diagnostic, and he's already failed a conservative trial, so that answer choice can be ruled out. Physical therapy probably would not have been unreasonable, and in fact, would have been an appropriate modality early in the course here, but now it's been four months of this with weight loss, so physical therapy um, wouldn't be the most appropriate choice. Choice E is NSAIDs, which he has already done with over-the-counter and and so 
Choice C, MRI of the lumbar spine is the most appropriate choice. His history of chronic low back pain, radicular symptoms, and weight loss is is concerning for a tumor impinging on, on the nerve root. And so MRI of the lumbar spine is indicated. So the learning point for this case is that persistent back pain with weight loss is concerning for an underlying malignancy and is an indication for imaging of the spine. And with that, we'll get back to our show. This is the oncology chapter from USMLE Step 2 Secrets, 5th edition. Question 1. What are the key differential points for the commonly tested blood dyscrasias? For acute lymphoblastic leukemia, this occurs in children with a peak age of 3 to 5 years. What to look for in the case description and trigger words? Pancytopenia, so bleeding, fever, and anemia. A history of radiation therapy or Down syndrome. AML, acute myelogenous leukemia. Age is over 30 years. Look for pancytopenia and hour rods or DIC, disseminated intravascular coagulation. CML, chronic myelogenous leukemia. Age 30 to 50 years. Look for white blood cell counts over 50,000. Philadelphia chromosome blast crisis, and splenomegaly. CLL, chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Age is over 50 years. Look for male gender, lymphadenopathy, lymphocytosis, infections, smudge cells, and splenomegaly. In hairy cell leukemia, this occurs in adults. On blood smear, look for hair-like projections, and also look for splenomegaly. For mycosis fungoides, look for age over 50 years. Look and also look for plaque-like itchy skin rash that does not improve with treatment. On blood smear, look for cerebriform nuclei known as butt cells. There are pouterier abscesses in the epidermis. For Burkitt lymphoma, this occurs in children. It's associated with Epstein-Barr virus in Africa. CNS B-cell lymphoma occurs in adults. It's seen in patients with HIV infection and AIDS. T-cell leukemia, adults. It's caused by HTLV-1 virus. Hodgkin disease, look for age 15 to 34. And on the exam, look for Reed-Sternberg cells, cervical lymphadenopathy, night sweats. Non-Hodgkin lymphoma can occur in any age. The small follicular type has the best prognosis. The large diffuse type has the worst prognosis. The primary tumor may be located in the gastrointestinal tract. For myelodysplasia or myelofibrosis over age 50 years, look for anemia, teardrop cells, a dry tap on bone marrow biopsy, high MCV and RDW, and it's associated with CML. Multiple myeloma, over 40 years, look for Bentz-Jones protein, osteolytic lesions, and high serum calcium. For Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia, look for over 40 years, as well as hyperviscosity and IgM spike and cold agglutinins. There's Raynaud phenomenon with cold sensitivity. For polycythemia vera, look for over 40 years, high hematocrit and hemoglobin, Paritis, especially after a hot bath or shower, 
and use phlebotomy to treat primary thrombocythemia over 50 years, platelet count is usually over 1 million, and the patient may have bleeding or thrombosis. Question two, which cancers have the overall highest incidence and mortality rate in men and women in the United States? The overall highest incidence in men, one, prostate cancer, two, lung cancer, three, colon cancer. In women, breast cancer, then lung cancer, then colon cancer. And the overall highest mortality rates in men, lung, prostate, and colon cancer. In women, lung, then breast, then colon cancer. Question three, what are the most common types of cancer in children and young adults younger than age 30 years? Leukemia and lymphoma. Four, what is the major risk factor for cancer? What is the major modifiable risk factor for cancer? Age is the biggest risk factor. The incidence of cancer in the United States roughly doubles every five years after age 25, and smoking is the biggest modifiable risk factor. Question five, what is the most common cancer in most organs? Metastatic cancer. On the step two exam, do not assume that the question is looking for the most common primary cancer unless the word primary is specified. Question six. Metastatic cancer to the spine can cause spinal cord compression. How do you recognize and treat this medical emergency? Spinal cord compression causes local spinal pain and neurologic symptoms, including reflex changes, weakness, sensory loss, paralysis, incontinence, and urinary retention. In rare cases, it may be the first indication of a malignancy. The first step is to start high-dose corticosteroids and order an MRI scan. Surgery, external beam radiation therapy, and stereotactic body radiotherapy are the treatment options for a tumor compressing the spinal cord. Prompt intervention is essential, and outcome is closely linked to pretreatment function. Question 7. Name the mode of inheritance and types of cancer found in the following condition. Retinoblastoma is autosomal dominant, and this is linked to retinoblastoma and osteogenic sarcoma later in life. Men type 1 syndrome, autosomal dominant, is linked to parathyroid, pituitary, and pancreatic cancers, specifically islet cell tumors. Men type 2A is autosomal dominant and is linked to medullary thyroid cancer, parathyroid cancer, and pheochromocytoma. Men type 2B is autosomal dominant, is linked to medullary thyroid cancer, pheochromocytoma, and mucosal neuromas. Familial polyposis coli is autosomal dominant. There are hundreds of colon polyps that always become cancerous. Gardner syndrome is autosomal dominant, familial polyposis plus osteomas and soft tissue tumors. Turco syndrome, autosomal dominant. This is familial polyposis plus CNS tumors. Huch Jagger's syndrome, autosomal dominant. Look for perioral freckles and multiple non-cancerous GI polyps. There's an increased incidence of non-colon cancer, specifically stomach, breast, and ovaries. There's no increased risk of colon cancer. Neurofibromatosis type 1 is autosomal dominant. There are multiple neurofibromas and cafe au lait spots. 
increased number of pheochromocytomas, bone cysts, Wilms tumors, and leukemia. Neurofibromatosis type 2 is autosomal dominant and is associated with bilateral acoustic neuromas. Tuberous sclerosis, autosomal dominant. Adenoma sebaceum, seizures, intellectual disability, glial nodules in the brain, increased renal angiomyolipomas, and cardiac rhabdomyomas. Von Hippel-Lindau disease is autosomal dominant, hemangioblastomas in the cerebellum, and renal cell cancer, cysts in the liver and or kidney. Xeroderma pigmentosa, autosomal recessive, associated with skin cancer. Albinism, autosomal recessive, associated with skin cancer. Down syndrome, trisomy 21, associated with leukemia. Question 8. What other conditions are associated with an increased risk of malignancy? Other diseases with an increased incidence of cancer include dermatomyositis, polymyositis, immunodeficiency syndromes, Bloom syndrome, and Fanconi anemia. Breast, ovarian, and colon cancer are well known to have familial tendencies, as well as some other types of cancer. But rarely can a Mendelian inheritance pattern be demonstrated. BRCA1 and BRCA2 gene mutations account for about 5% of breast cancers. Question 9. Cover the right-hand column and specify the major environmental risk factors for the following cancers. For lung, the risk factors are smoking and asbestos exposure, as well as exposure to nickel, radon, coal, arsenic, chromium, and uranium. For mesothelioma, risk factors are asbestos and smoking. For leukemia, risk factors, chemotherapy and radiotherapy, other immunosuppressive drugs, and benzene. Bladder cancer, smoking, aniline dyes, specifically the rubber and dye industry, and schistosomiasis in immigrants. For skin cancer, ultraviolet light exposure from the sun, coal tar, and arsenic. Liver cancer, alcohol, vinyl chloride, which can be linked to liver angiosarcomas, and aflatoxins in Africa. The oral cavity, smoking, alcohol, and HPV infection, often genotype 16. Pharynx and larynx, smoking, alcohol, HPV infection. Esophagus, smoking, and alcohol. Pancreas, smoking. Renal cell, smoking. Stomach cancer, alcohol, nitrites and nitrosamines from things like smoked meats and fish. Clear cell cancer of the cervix and vagina is linked to in utero exposure to diethylstilbestrol, or DES. Colon and rectum cancer, high fat and low fiber diet, smoking, alcohol, and obesity. Breast cancer, chest radiation, hormone replacement therapy, and alcohol. Cervical cancer, HPV infection, and smoking. Thyroid cancer, childhood neck or chest irradiation, and low dietary iodine. Endometrial cancer, unopposed estrogen stimulation, obesity, tamoxifen, and high fat diet. And then all cancers overall, smoking, 
The number two risk factor is probably alcohol. Question 10. What clinical vignette should make you suspect lung cancer? The classic clue is a change in the chronic cough of a smoker. The more pack years of tobacco use, the more suspicious you should be. Patients may also present with hemoptysis, pneumonia, or weight loss. The chest radiograph may show a mass or pleural effusion. Perform thoracentesis to examine for malignant cells. Question 11. How do you diagnose and treat lung cancer? As with all cancers, you need a tissue biopsy, for example, via bronchoscopy, CT-guided biopsy, or open lung biopsy, to confirm malignancy and to define the histologic type. Non-small cell lung cancer may be treated with surgery if the cancer remains within the lung parenchyma, that is, without involvement of the opposite lung, pleura, chest wall, spine, or mediastinal structures. Early metastases of small cell lung cancer make surgery inappropriate. Usually, a platinum-containing chemotherapy regimen such as cisplatin is used, and vivacizumab can be added for non-small cell lung cancer. Question 12. What consequences can result from an apical pancoast lung cancer? Horner syndrome from invasion of the cervical lymphatic chain. Look for unilateral ptosis, meiosis, and anhydrosis, which is no sweating. Superior vena cava syndrome, due to compression of the superior vena cava with impaired venous drainage. Look for edema and plethora, or redness, of the neck and face, and central nervous system symptoms, such as headache, visual symptoms, and altered mental status. Unilateral diaphragm paralysis, from phrenic nerve involvement. An apical tumor is not required and this will result in an elevated hemidiaphragm on chest x-ray. Hoarseness, from recurrent laryngeal nerve involvement. An apical tumor is not required. Question 13. What is a paraneoplastic syndrome? What are the commonly tested paraneoplastic syndromes of lung cancer? A paraneoplastic syndrome is a condition caused by a malignancy, but not due directly to destruction or invasion by the tumor. Classic examples in lung cancer include the following. Cushing syndrome from production of adrenocorticotropic hormone. Histologic type is small cell carcinoma. The syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone secretion, or SIADH, from production of antidiuretic hormone. Histologic type, small cell carcinoma. Hypercalcemia from production of parathyroid-like hormone. Histologic type, squamous cell carcinoma. Eaton-Lambert syndrome, a myasthenia gravis-like disease from lung cancer that spares the ocular muscles. The muscles become stronger with repetitive stimulation, which is the opposite of myasthenia gravis. Histologic type, small cell carcinoma. Question 14. How should you manage a patient with a solitary pulmonary nodule on chest radiograph? The first step is comparison with previous chest radiographs. If the nodule has remained the same size for more than two years, it is very unlikely to be cancer. If no old films are available and the patient is older than 35 years or has more than a five-year history of smoking, get a CT scan and possibly an FDG PET scan. If these are not definitely benign, get a biopsy of the nodule via bronchoscopy or transthoracic needle biopsy if possible 
for tissue diagnosis. If the patient is younger than 35 years or has no smoking history, the cause is most likely infection, such as tuberculosis or fungi, hamartoma, or collagen vascular disease. The patient should undergo CT scan and careful observation with follow-up imaging in three to six months. Investigate for infection if the history is suspicious. Question 15. Over the course of their lifetime, how many women in the United States will develop breast cancer? Roughly one in eight. Question 16. What are the risk factors for breast cancer? A personal history of breast cancer, which is a major risk factor. Female sex. Family history and first degree relatives. Age greater than 40. Breast cancer is rare before age 30, and the incidence steadily increases with age. Early menarche or late menopause, which essentially is longer estrogen exposure. Late first pregnancy or nulliparity. More menstrual cycles equal higher risk. Atypical hyperplasia of the breast. Radiation exposure before age 30. Inherited gene mutations such as BRCA1 and 2. Dense breast tissue, high-fat diet, DES exposure, recent oral contraceptive use, combined postmenopausal hormone replacement therapy, excessive alcohol consumption, and obesity. Question 17. What classic signs and symptoms indicate that a breast mass is cancer until proven otherwise? Fixation of the breast mass to the chest wall or overlying skin. Satellite nodules or ulcers on the skin, lymphedema called peau d'orange, matted or fixed axillary lymph nodes, inflammatory skin changes such as red hot skin with enlargement of the breast due to inflammatory carcinoma, prolonged unilateral scaling erosion of the nipple with or without discharge, this may be Paget disease of the nipple, microcalcifications on mammography, and any new breast mass in a postmenopausal woman. Question 18. What is the conservative approach to ensure that you do not miss a breast cancer? When in doubt, biopsy every palpable breast mass in women over 35 that is not clearly a cyst. Ultrasound is needed to make the determination, especially if the patient has any of the risk factors mentioned in the previous question. If the step two question does not want you to biopsy the mass, it will give clues that the mass is not a cancer. For example, bilateral lumpy breasts that become symptomatic with every menses and have no dominant mass, or patients younger than age 30. Question 19. What should you do with the breast mass in a woman under age 30? In women under 30, breast cancer is rare. With a discrete breast mass in this age group, you should think of fibroadenoma. Consider ultrasound of the breast and observe the patient over a few menstrual cycles before considering biopsy unless the ultrasound is suspicious. Fibroadenomas are usually roundish, rubbery feeling, and freely movable. Question 20. What is the most common histologic type of breast cancer? Invasive infiltrating ductal carcinoma accounts for about 70% of breast cancer. Question 21. What is the role of mammography in deciding whether to biopsy a breast mass? When a palpable breast mass is detected, the decision to biopsy is made on clinical grounds. A mammogram that looks benign should not deter you from doing a biopsy, 
if you are clinically suspicious. On the other hand, a lesion that is detected on mammography and looks suspicious should be biopsied, even if it is not palpable. Needle localization biopsy can be used. Question 22. True or false? A mammogram should not be done in women under age 30. True in most cases. The breast tissue is too dense for current techniques to be of value. Mammograms in women under age 30 are rarely helpful. Question 23. What are the adjuvant therapies for breast cancer? How does each type of therapy work? Tamoxifen is a selective estrogen receptor modulator, or CIRM, that improves outcomes in premenopausal women with estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. Tamoxifen has also been shown to decrease the risk of breast cancer in women at high risk of developing the disease. Aromatase inhibitors block the peripheral conversion of androgens to estrogens. Examples include anastrozole, exemestane, and letrozole. Ovarian suppression with GnRH agonist such as gocerolin or ablation inhibits endogenous estrogen production from the ovaries. Question 24. How are the adjuvant therapies used in non-metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer? The endocrine options for treatment depend on whether or not a woman is in menopause. A premenopausal woman at high risk of recurrence is usually treated with ovarian suppression and exemestane. A premenopausal woman not at high risk of recurrence is usually treated with tamoxifen, which avoids the toxicities of ovarian suppression and endocrine therapy. A postmenopausal woman is usually treated with an aromatase inhibitor. No ovarian suppression is needed because estrogen is not being produced by the ovaries. Question 25. How is human epidermal growth factor receptor 2, or HER2-new, breast cancer treated? HER2-new breast cancer is treated with chemotherapy, usually doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide, with trastuzumab as adjuvant therapy. Trastuzumab targets the HER2 protein. Question 26. What is the recommended treatment for women at high risk of developing breast cancer who have not yet developed breast cancer? For women at high risk of developing breast cancer, endocrine therapy is generally preferred over observation. Postmenopausal women can be treated with a CIRM, tamoxifen or raloxifene, or an aromatase inhibitor, anastrozole or exemestane. Premenopausal women at high risk are usually treated with tamoxifen. Question 27. True or false? Mastectomy and breast conserving surgery with radiation are considered equal in efficacy. True. In either case, do an axillary node dissection or a sentinel node biopsy to determine spread to the nodes. If nodes are positive, give chemotherapy. Question 28. What are the three main risk factors for prostate cancer? Age. Prostate cancer is rare in men younger than 40 years old. The incidence increases with age, and about 60% of men older than 80 years have at least microscopic prostate cancer. Race. Black, greater than white, greater than Asian in terms of risk. Family history. Men who have a family history of prostate cancer are more likely to develop the disease at a younger age and to die from it than men who don't have a family history. Question 29. How do you recognize prostate cancer on the Step 2 exam? Look for patients over the age of 50 years. 
Patients often present late because early prostate cancer is asymptomatic. Look for symptoms typical of benign prostatic hyperplasia, hesitancy, dysuria, frequency, with hematuria and or elevated PSA. Look for prostate irregularities, nodules, on rectal exam. Patients may also present with back pain from vertebral metastases, which are osteoblastic. Question 30. How is prostate cancer treated? Local prostate cancer is treated with surgery, prostatectomy, or local radiation. For metastatic disease, treatment is androgen deprivation therapy with surgical or medical orchiectomy to suppress serum testosterone levels. Options include orchiectomy or medical treatment with a GnRH agonist, such as luprolide, gosarolin, bucerolin, triptorolin, combined with an antiandrogen such as an androgen receptor antagonist like flutamide, or a GnRH antagonist such as Degarelix. Radiation therapy is used for local disease or pain from bony metastases. Docetaxel chemotherapy can com- be combined with androgen deprivation therapy for patients with extensive metastatic disease. Question 31. List the primary risk factors for colon cancer. Age. Incidence begins to increase after age 40. Peak incidence is between 60 and 75 years. Family history, especially with familial polyposis or Gardner, Turco, Puchjagers, or Lynch syndromes. Inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis more than Crohn disease, but both are associated with increased risk. And finally, a low-fiber, high-fat diet. Question 32. How do patients with colon cancer tend to present? Patients may present with asymptomatic blood in the stool, visible streaks of blood in stool, or positive stool blood test. Anemia is classic with right-sided colon cancer. A change in stool caliber or frequency is a classic presentation of left-sided colon cancer. Colon cancer is also a common cause of large bowel obstruction in adults. As with any cancer, look for weight loss. Question 33. What is the rule about occult blood in the stool of a patient over age 40? Occult blood in the stool of a person older than 40 years should be considered colon cancer until proven otherwise. To rule out colon cancer, do a colonoscopy. Question 34. How is colon cancer treated? Treatment is primarily surgical, with resection of involved bowel. Adjuvant chemotherapy, usually with oxaliplatin-based regimen, is usually recommended if there is lymph node involvement. The role of oxaliplatin in the elderly is controversial, and fluorouracil may be a better option in this population. Distant metastases frequently go to the liver first, as with all gastrointestinal tumors. Surgical resection of a solitary liver metastasis is often attempted. With metastases elsewhere, chemotherapy is the only option, and prognosis is poor. Question 35. What is the classic tumor marker for colon cancer? How is it used clinically? Carcinoembryonic antigen, CEA, may be elevated with colon cancer. And if a patient is found to have colon cancer, the CEA level is usually measured before surgery. If it is elevated preoperatively, which is not always the case, the CEA level should return to normal after surgical removal of the tumor. Periodic monitoring of CEA after surgery may help to detect recurrence before it is clinically apparent. 
CEA is not used as a screening tool for colon cancer. It is used only to follow known cancer because it is neither sensitive nor specific and can be elevated with other visceral tumors. Question 36. Describe the classic presentation of pancreatic cancer. How is it treated? What is the cell of origin? The classic patient is a 40 to 80-year-old smoker who has lost weight and has painless jaundice. Other signs and symptoms include depression, epigastric pain, migratory thrombophlebitis, Trousseau syndrome, which may also be seen with other visceral cancers, and a palpable, non-tender gallbladder, Cavassier sign. Pancreatic cancer is more common in men than in women, in diabetics than in non-diabetics, and in blacks than in whites. Surgery, a Whipple procedure, is rarely curative, and the prognosis is generally dismal. Chemotherapy is minimally successful at prolonging survival. The cell of origin in pancreatic cancer is ductal epithelium. Question 37. What is the most common islet cell tumor of the pancreas? How is it diagnosed? Insulinomas are the most common islet cell tumors. Look for two-thirds of the Whipple triad hypoglycemia with a glucose less than 50 mg per deciliter, and central nervous systems due to hypoglycemia, including confusion, stupor, and loss of consciousness. As a good doctor, you provide the third part of the Whipple triad, administration of glucose to relieve symptoms. 90% of insulinomas are benign and can be cured with resection, if possible. In your workup, take a history and check the C-peptide level first to make sure that the patient is not a diabetic who is taking too much insulin or a patient with factitious disorder. C-peptide levels are high with insulinoma and low with the other disorders. Question 38. Define Zollinger-Ellison syndrome. What clues point to the diagnosis? Zollinger-Ellison syndrome is a gastronoma that causes acid hypersecretion. Gastrin stimulates acid secretion and results in peptic ulcer disease. Peptic ulcers are often multiple and resistant to therapy and may be found in unusual locations, such as the distal duodenum or jejunum. More than one half of these pancreatic islet cell tumors are malignant. Diagnosis is made with an elevated fasting serum gastrin level or a secretin stimulation test. Question 39. Name the other two islet cell tumors. What should islet cell tumors make you think about? One. Glucagonomas cause hyperglycemia with high glucagon levels and migratory necrotizing skin erythema. Vipomas, tumors that secrete vasoactive intestinal peptide, cause watery diarrhea, hypokalemia, and achlorhydria. Watch for multiple endocrine neoplasia syndromes in patients with islet cell tumors. Question 40 How does ovarian cancer classically present? How are ovarian masses evaluated? Ovarian cancer classically presents late with weight loss, pelvic mass, ascites, and or bowel obstruction. Any ovarian enlargement in a postmenopausal female is cancer until proven otherwise. In women of reproductive age, most ovarian enlargements are benign. Ultrasound is a good first test to evaluate an ovarian lesion. Question 41. How is ovarian cancer treated? What is the cell of origin? What is the most common type of ovarian cancer? Ovarian cancer is usually treated with debulking surgery and chemotherapy. The prognosis is usually poor due to a late presentation. 
Most ovarian cancers arise from ovarian epithelium. Serous cyst adenocarcinoma is the most common type. Histopathologic studies classically reveal somoma bodies. Mucinous cyst adenocarcinoma is also common. When clinicians use the term ovarian cancer without a qualifier, they are talking about epithelial malignancies, that is, cyst adenocarcinomas. Question 42. List the three commonly tested germ cell tumors. What clues suggest their presence? 1. Teratoma or dermoid cyst is the most common and the most tested type. Look for a description of the tumor to include skin, hair, and or teeth or bone. It may show up as calcifications on radiographs. 2. Sertoli Leydig cell tumor, which causes virilization, such as hirsutism, receding hairline, deepening voice, and clitoromegaly. 3. Ranulosa theca cell tumors, which cause feminization and precocious puberty. Female patients with germ cell tumors of the ovary are classically under the age of 30 years. Question 43. What is Meg syndrome? An ovarian fibroma that causes ascites and right hydrothorax. Question 44. What is a Krukenberg tumor? A stomach cancer or other GI malignancy with metastases to the ovaries. Question 45. What commonly used medication has been shown to reduce the risk of ovarian cancer? Oral contraceptive pills, which also reduce the incidence of endometrial cancer. Question 46. What is the best available screening method to reduce the incidence and mortality of cervical cancer? Pap smears. Perform a pap smear on all female patients if they are due, even if they present for a totally unrelated complaint. Screening should start at age 21, regardless of sexual activity. The frequency of screening depends on whether HPV testing is also being used, as well as the patient's age and results of previous pap smears. See Chapter 31 for additional details. Question 47. What should you do if a pap smear is abnormal? The follow-up for an abnormal pap smear depends on the cervical cytologic results. Lower-grade lesions may be evaluated with HPV testing and colposcopy and endocervical curatage if needed. Higher-grade lesions require colposcopy with biopsy and or loop electrosurgical excision, also called LEAP. Invasive cancer requires surgery, at least a hysterectomy, and includes radiation plus cisplatin-based chemotherapy. Question 48. List the main risk factors for cervical cancer. HPV infection, early onset of sexual activity, multiple sexual partners, a high-risk sexual partner, such as a partner with multiple sexual partners or known HPV infection, smoking, history of sexually transmitted infection, immunosuppression, and low socioeconomic status. Question 49. Where does cervical cancer begin? How does it present? How is it treated? Invasive cervical cancer begins in the transformation zone and usually presents with vaginal bleeding or discharge, such as postcoital bleeding, intermenstrual bleeding, or abnormal menstrual bleeding. Treat with surgery and or radiation. Question 50. What do you need to know about diethylstilbestrol, or DES, and cancer? 
Maternal exposure to DES during pregnancy increases a daughter's risk of developing clear cell cancer of the cervix and or vagina. Question 51. What is the rule of thumb for postmenopausal vaginal bleeding? Postmenopausal vaginal bleeding is cancer until proven otherwise. Endometrial cancer is the most common type to present in this fashion. It is also the fourth most common cancer overall in women. Do an endometrial biopsy, which is generally preferred, or a transvaginal ultrasound for any woman with postmenopausal bleeding, as well as a pap smear. Question 52. List the main risk factors for endometrial cancer. Obesity, nulliparity, late menopause, diabetes, hypertension, and gallbladder disease, which are all probably related to obesity and chronic unopposed estrogen stimulation, such as polycystic ovary syndrome, an estrogen-secreting neoplasm, and estrogen replacement therapy without progesterone, although this has now been called into question. Question 53. What is the most common type of endometrial cancer? How is it treated? Most uterine cancers are adenocarcinomas and spread by direct extension. Treat with surgery and radiation. Question 54. What commonly prescribed medication reduces the risk of endometrial cancer? Oral contraceptive pills, which also decrease the risk for ovarian cancer. Question 55. Describe the common presentations of brain tumors. Central nervous system, or CNS, tumors are the second most common tumors in children, second to leukemia. Be suspicious in this age group. In adults, two-thirds of primary tumors are supratentorial, that is, above the tentorium cerebelli, a portion of dura that separates the cerebellum from the cerebral hemispheres, whereas in children, two-thirds are infratentorial, that is, lower brainstem or cerebellum, in the posterior fossa. In either group, look for new-onset seizures, neurologic deficits, or signs of intracranial hypertension, such as headache, blurred vision, papilledema, nausea, and projectile vomiting. In children, also look for hydrocephalus, which is manifested as an inappropriately increasing head circumference, new clumsiness, ataxia, loss of developmental milestones, or a change in school performance or personality. Question 56. What are the most common histologic types of primary CNS tumors in children and adults? How are primary brain tumors treated? The most common primary type in adults is glioma. Most gliomas are astrocytomas, which are intraparenchymal and have little or no calcification. The second most common type in adults is meningioma, which is often calcified and is external to the brain substance. In children, the most common types are cerebellar astrocytoma, or benign pilocytic astrocytoma, and medulloblastoma, followed by ependymoma. Treat with surgical removal if possible, followed by radiation and or chemotherapy, depending on the tumor. Question 57. Which cancers tend to metastasize to the brain? Lung cancer, breast cancer, and melanoma are the most common. Together, they account for 75% of brain metastases. Question 58. 
What tumor is most likely in a young, obese woman with headaches, papilledema, vomiting, and a negative CT or MR scan? A pseudotumor, as in pseudotumor cerebri. Pseudotumors are not actual tumors, but reflect idiopathic increased intracranial pressure. Signs and symptoms include headache, papilledema, vision loss, elevated intracranial pressure with normal CSF, and no other evident cause of intracranial hypertension. Weight loss may help. Acetazolamide or topiramate may also help. Repeated lumbar punctures or a CSF shunt may be needed to prevent vision loss. Question 59. What tumor should you suspect in an adult with signs of 8th cranial nerve damage and increased intracranial pressure? An acoustic neuroma, especially in the setting of neurofibromatosis. Co-involvement of the facial nerve is not uncommon. Question 60. What tumor should you suspect in children with intracranial calcifications on skull radiographs? Craniopharyngioma, which are benign tumors that arise from remnants of the Rathke pouch and grow slowly from birth. Question 61. What should you know about testicular cancer? It is the most common solid malignancy in adult men younger than 30 years old. The main risk factor is cryptorchidism. Transillumination and ultrasound help to distinguish a hydrocele, which is filled with fluid and transilluminates, from cancer, which is solid and does not transilluminate. The most common histologic type is seminoma, which is radiosensitive and highly curable. Use ultrasound to make the diagnosis. Question 62. What tumor resembles a bunch of grapes coming out of the vagina? Sarcoma botoroides a type of embryonal rhabdomyosarcoma usually seen in children. Question 63. What is the classic physical finding of a pituitary tumor? What is the most common type? The classic physical finding is bitemporal hemianopsia. Order an MRI of the brain in any patient with this finding. Patients also may have signs and symptoms of increased intracranial pressure. The most common type is a prolactinoma which is associated with high prolactin levels, galacteria, and menstrual or sexual dysfunction. Other types of pituitary tumors may cause hyperthyroidism, Cushing disease, or acromegaly, or they may be non-functional, that is, they do not secrete hormones. Question 64. What two points do you need to know about nasopharyngeal cancer? It is usually seen in Asians, particularly those who are originally from Asia and it is associated with Epstein-Barr virus. Question 65. Describe the classic presentation of esophageal cancer. What is the most common cell type? The presentation depends on the histologic type. The classic patient with squamous cell carcinoma is a chronic smoker and alcohol drinker between the ages of 40 and 60 years. It's more common in blacks than whites, and who presents with weight loss, anemia, and the complaint that my food is sticking, which progresses to dysphagia for liquids. The other cell type is adenocarcinoma, which is typically due to malignant degeneration of Barrett esophagus, columnar metaplasia of esophageal squamous epithelium due to acid reflux. Thus, patients typically have a long history of acid reflux and heartburn. 
Prognosis is usually quite poor in either type due to late presentation. Squamous cell carcinomas used to predominate, but squamous cell carcinoma and adenocarcinoma now occur with almost equal frequency. Question 66. What physical and laboratory findings suggest thyroid cancer? What is the most common type of thyroid cancer? What historical point is of concern with thyroid cancer? Patients often have a single, stony hard nodule or mass in the thyroid gland that may be rapidly enlarging. The nodule is cold on a nuclear scan, that is, it fails to take up radioactive tracer. The most common type is papillary thyroid cancer. Other worrisome findings are hoarseness, which indicates recurrent laryngeal nerve invasion, and increased calcitonin level, which indicates the rare medullary thyroid cancer. Patients with medullary thyroid cancer may have men's syndrome. Historically, irradiation to the head or neck is of concern due to its association with thyroid cancer. Question 67. How should you evaluate a thyroid mass for possible malignancy? To evaluate a nodule in the thyroid, order thyroid function tests. TSH, or thyroid-stimulating hormone, is the best screening test. Toxic or functional nodules are unlikely to be cancer. If the TSH is normal, get a fine needle aspiration of the mass. If the TSH is decreased, then order a nuclear scan. A cold nodule or area of decreased uptake is more suspicious than a nodule with normal or increased uptake. Ultrasound is also commonly used to help evaluate a thyroid mass. Fine needle aspiration and biopsy should be performed for almost all thyroid nodules. Question 68. What clinical vignette is suspicious for bladder cancer? Persistent, painless hematuria, especially in patients older than 40 years who smoke or work in the rubber or dye industry, exposure to aniline dye. CT scan to evaluate the upper urinary tract and cystoscopy should be performed to evaluate for potential bladder cancer, as well as other causes of hematuria, including renal cell carcinoma. Question 69. What increases the risk for hepatocellular cancer of the liver? What is the classic tumor marker for liver cancer? The same factors that increase the risk for cirrhosis. The big three are alcohol, chronic hepatitis, hepatitis C is now more likely culprit than hepatitis B, and hemochromatosis. Alpha-fetoprotein is often elevated and can be measured postoperatively to detect recurrences. It can also be used for screening, along with ultrasound, in high-risk populations, for example, those with cirrhosis. Question 70. How do patients with liver cancer present? How is liver cancer treated? Patients often have a history of alcoholism, hepatitis, and or hemochromatosis or other causes of cirrhosis. They present with weight loss, right upper quadrant pain, and an enlarged liver. Surgery is the only hope for cure. The prognosis is poor. Question 71. What other tumors of the liver may appear on the USMLE? What clues suggest their presence? Hemangioma, the most common primary tumor of the liver. It is benign and generally left alone. Surgery is done only if symptoms such as pain or bleeding are present. Hepatic adenoma, 
a benign tumor in women of reproductive age who take birth control pills. Stop the birth control pills and the tumor may regress. If not, surgery is usually preferred to prevent hemorrhage and rare malignant transformation. Cholangiocarcinoma, which is malignant. 50% of patients have inflammatory bowel disease, especially ulcerative colitis. Liver flukes increase the risk in some immigrant populations, such as those from China, Japan, Taiwan, Vietnam, Korea, and far eastern Russia. Angiosarcoma, which is malignant. Look for industrial exposure to vinyl chloride. Hepatoblastoma, which is malignant, the most common primary liver malignancy in children. Question 72. What is the significance of adrenal tumors? Most are benign, but they may be functional and cause primary hyperaldosteronism, Kahn syndrome, or hyperadrenalism, Cushing syndrome. Another possibility is pheochromocytoma, which is associated with intermittent severe hypertension, mental status changes, headaches, and diaphoresis. Question 73. What are the risk factors for stomach cancer? What are the symptoms? Risk factors include Asian race, increasing age, smoking history, ingestion of smoked meat, and helicobacter pylori infection. Signs and symptoms include anemia, weight loss, early satiety, abdominal pain, and a non-healing gastric ulcer. All gastric ulcers must be biopsied to exclude malignancy. Consider follow-up endoscopy to document resolution of an ulcer, though this is somewhat controversial. Be especially suspicious if the question describes a non-healing ulcer in a patient with weight loss. Question 74. What is a Virchow node? A Virchow node is a left supraclavicular node enlargement due to the spread of visceral cancer, classically stomach cancer. Question 75. What do you need to know about osteosarcomas for the Step 2 exam? Osteosarcomas are the most commonly seen around the knee in 10 to 30-year-old patients. The classic x-ray finding is a sunburst periosteal reaction in the distal femur or proximal tibia associated with a mass. In older adults, the risk is increased in bones with long-standing Paget disease or osteomyelitis. Question 76. What are the symptoms of carcinoid tumors? Where are they most commonly found? Carcinoid tumors secrete serotonin-like products that can cause symptoms, but the liver breaks down serotonin and other vasoactive secretions to make the tumor initially asymptomatic. Once a carcinoid tumor metastasizes to the liver and vasoactive products reach the systemic circulation, symptoms begin, and this is carcinoid syndrome. Symptoms include episodic cutaneous flushing, abdominal cramps, diarrhea, and right-sided heart valve damage. The most common location is in the small bowel, but carcinoid tumors are also the most common appendiceal tumor, sometimes found at the time of appendectomy in patients with appendicitis. Question 77. What lab tests detect carcinoid tumors? Urinary levels of 5-hydroxyindoleacetic acid, or 5-HIAA, a serotonin breakdown product, are increased. Question 78. What is the classic clinical manifestation of Kaposi sarcoma? 
a rash that does not respond to multiple treatments in an HIV-positive patient. Kaposi sarcoma is a vascular skin tumor that commonly begins as a papule or plaque on the upper body or in the oral cavity. It is highly associated with herpes virus 8 infection. Question 79. What is the main risk factor for skin cancer? Ultraviolet light exposure. Question 80. Explain the A, B, C, D, E's of melanoma. What should you do if they are present? The A, B, C, D, E's of melanoma are characteristics of a mole that should make you suspicious for malignant transformation. A, for asymmetry. B, for borders that are irregular. C, for color change or multiple colors. D, for diameter. Lesions greater than 6 millimeters are more likely to be malignant. And E, for evolving changes, lesions that change over time. Do an excisional biopsy of a lesion with any of these characteristics because melanomas commonly metastasize if not caught early. The risk of metastasis correlates most closely with depth of invasion into the skin. Question 81. What do you need to know about basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers? Both of these cancers usually appear on sun-exposed areas, classically the head and neck area. The classic description of a basal cell cancer is a pearly, umbilicated nodule with telangiectasias. It is extremely common and almost never metastasizes. Squamous cell cancer sometimes metastasizes and often has a red, scaly, inflamed appearance or presents as an area of skin ulceration. Excisional biopsy is appropriate for all suspicious lesions. Question 82. How can you differentiate a Wilms tumor from a neuroblastoma? Both present as flank masses in children. Peak age is around two years. Neuroblastomas most commonly arise from the adrenal gland and often contain calcifications, whereas a Wilms tumor arises from the kidney and rarely calcifies. Thus, Imaging with CT scan can usually distinguish the two. In rare cases, neuroblastomas regress spontaneously for unknown reasons. Question 83. What factors increase the risk for oral cancers? Describe the typical appearance. Smoking or chewing tobacco, alcohol consumption, and HPV infection are the main risk factors for oral cancer, and their effects are synergistic. Also look for pleural hygiene. Lesions often begin as leukoplakia, a white patch, or malacoplakia, a red patch. Oral hairy leukoplakia can resemble leukoplakia somewhat, but is an unrelated condition affecting HIV-positive patients that is associated with the Epstein-Barr virus, which is a main risk factor for nasopharyngeal cancer. The clinical setting should help you distinguish the two. Question 84. What are the two major cytologic clues for histiocytosis? CD1 positive cells and Burbeck granules. These are cytoplasmic inclusion bodies that look like tennis rackets. Question 85. What is a unicameral bone cyst? Who gets it? Describe the classic presentation. It is an expansile, lytic, well-demarcated benign lesion in the proximal portion of the humerus in children and adolescents. Although benign, 
it may weaken bone enough to cause a pathologic fracture of the humerus, a classic presentation. Question 86. Describe the classic presentation of a retinoblastoma. Retinoblastoma classically presents in a child younger than three years old with leukocoria. The pupillary red reflex changes to white, and it can also present with unilateral exophthalmos. It may be bilateral in the inherited form. Question 87. True or false? All patients with metastatic cancer should be encouraged to receive chemotherapy. False. The risks and side effects of chemotherapy can be significant, and sometimes minimal prolongation of life is achieved. The risks and benefits must be weighed. Patients with cancer, like all other patients, have the right to refuse treatment. However, watch for and treat depression, even in terminal patients. Question 88. Cover the right-hand column and name the cancers associated with the following tumor markers. Alpha-fetoprotein, liver, hepatocellular carcinoma, or gonad, yolk sac tumors. Carcinoembryonic antigen, or CEA, colorectal, lung, breast, ovary, pancreas, thyroid, liver, stomach, bladder, and prostate cancers. Prostate-specific antigen, or PSA, prostate cancer. Human chorionic gonadotropin, or HCG. Hydatiform moles, choriocarcinoma, and testicular cancer. CA125, ovarian cancer. S100, melanoma. CA199, pancreas and colorectal cancer. CA27-29, breast cancer. CA15-3, breast cancer. Hormone receptors, estrogen and progesterone, breast cancer. HER2, breast cancer. Beta-2 microglobulin, multiple myeloma, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL, and some lymphomas. Bladder tumor antigen, or BTA bladder cancer, calcitonin, medullary thyroid carcinoma. That's the end of this chapter. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, my publishing company behind USMLE Step 2 Secrets, for allowing us to put out this book in audio format. Please check out the other Inside the Boards podcasts over at insidetheboards.com including the main Inside the Boards podcast and the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series for question breakdowns and tips on getting through medical school. And with that, we wrap up today's episode of USMLE Step 2 Secrets. Hi, this is Ted O'Connell. I just wanted to let you know real quick that when the time comes for you to begin studying for the USMLE Step 3, we actually now have a USMLE Step 3 subscription podcast. So I encourage you to check that out over at medpreptogo.com. We have sample episodes available. And even if you're studying for step two, you may actually find some of this content uh, really useful for your studies. So please do check it out.